0: We can't all shoot for 180, and I, I agree with Anonymous. I don't think 180 is a reasonable goal, probably for anybody. So how do I how do I know where to stop?
1: Hello and welcome to episode 438 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson, and with me is Nathan Fox. We're the co-founders of LSATDemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily Podcast. For those of you who just finished the January LSAT, congratulations. Let us know how it went, good or bad. We want to hear. You can do that at thinkinglsat.com. You can also ask any questions about whatever at thinkinglsat.com. Coming up this Wednesday, Nathan, you have a double black diamond class that's free for everyone.
0: Yep. It's an expert level logical reasoning class. We do a whole bunch of hard questions. The questions are basically by request. So Uh, students who run across really hard questions during the week and they want to add it to the double black diamond agenda, they just email our help team and get the questions on there. Or if any of our teachers or tutors encounter questions where they're like, Ooh, that was a doozy. We should put this on the double black diamond agenda. That's how that's built. Um, This one is going to be on Wednesday, January 24th, 9 PM Eastern time. Uh, And yeah, it's a, a free class. So guess anybody can just sign up for a demon free account and come join and watch me do a whole bunch of harder logical reasoning questions. Uh, go to lsat.link free if you want to sign up for that free class coming on Wednesday, the 24th. All right. Um, Anonymous says, when have I reached my LSAT potential? Hi, Ben and Nathan. I know you guys always say to take the official LSAT when your practice scores indicate that you are ready. But what does that mean? Exactly. I'm assuming I shouldn't drill and take time sections until I consistently get a 180 every time, right? By the same token, I'm assuming I shouldn't take the test when I'm constantly getting a 160 every time either. Or should I? Basically, what I'm asking is, when do I know I'm ready and have reached my potential? For unnecessary context, I recently started studying with the demon after taking a year off from studying the LSAT in order to work. I took a practice test the other day and got a 151, which I was pleasantly surprised at after not studying for so long. Obviously, I have a ways to go until I reach my potential, but I'm pleased to know that the demon is working already. Thanks for making the LSAT easier. Anonymous.
1: I want to make one quick edit there. Anonymous says, I'm pleased to know that the demon way
0: is working. Oh, the demon way is working. Yeah. So...
1: Um, yeah, the method is working. That's great to hear. You know, okay, when do you stop? When do your practice test scores mean you've reached your goal? Well, it depends on where you want to go to school and what LSAT you need given your GPA. Right? For so many people, that number is different. So, my my first answer to this is go to lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships. Put in your undergraduate GPA. And then start looking at the schools that you can get into for free and see if there are any that interest you. Mm -hmm. And if there aren't, then push the LSAT score up a little bit. See if any come online that look interesting to you until you find a number of schools, ideally five to 10, that are for free and with a score that you think you can reach.
0: Yeah, and um, I would say... Click on the little, yeah, it's lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships again Mm -hmm. is the link. And then when you find some schools that you're interested in, you know, click on the little PDF icon next to the school, because then you can scroll down and you can look at their actual grants and scholarships table to see, you know, okay, here are the actual offers that they've been sending out. That's where we get the the data from, right? We're not making it up. We're getting it off of their 509 reports. You can also look at their LSAT and GPA medians and 25th and 75th percentiles so that you can get a little more granular about what kinds of students they're admitting. And then, you know, you can extrapolate from there. Well, okay, the people who are at their 75th percentile for LSAT and or GPA are probably the ones that are getting the good scholarships, right? Makes sense. So it can give you a better sense of what kinds of schools you should really be targeting. Um that is what I was going to say too, but let me let me make the next obvious I guess question which is well, but if I put 180, that's when I get all the best offers. So how do I how do I know where to stop? Because I that's part of what anonymous is asking, right? Like we yeah. we can't all shoot for 180. And I I agree with anonymous. I don't think 180 is a reasonable goal. Probably for anybody, I, I just, it's not sensible to shoot for one eighty because you never need one eighty, and because it's like ninety nine point nine nine percentile, right? One out of ten thousand people are going to get a one eighty. Yeah. So if you're, you know, let's say you're, you don't think that you're a one in ten thousand applicant, you're at one fifty one right now. What kind of improvement? should Anonymous reasonably be targeting if it's not 180?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's unreasonable to start around a 151. I don't know where Anonymous initially started at the very beginning of his or her prep, but high 160s, low 170s, not unreasonable to shoot for. You may try and then eventually decide, hey, I put in way too much effort to get up there, and I just can't seem to break 165. but I don't think it's unreasonable to shoot for the high one sixties. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and even above that, right. Yeah. We see, we see 15, 20, 25 and 25 point improvements all the time. And even mm-hmm. higher than that is not unheard of. We had Eric did an awesome interview on LSAT demon daily recently with mm-hmm. a, a student who had improved by 39 points. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so, you know, if uh, Anonymous improves by 39 points from here, they'll score a 190 on the LSAT, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. would be quite an achievement. Um, wow. So that yeah. was
1: uh that was a cold diagnostic to an official score.
0: I believe, so. I, I believe so. I believe so. You have wow. to go back and listen to that episode. But it it was I mean. I'm very comfortable saying we have seen multiple 30 point improvements. Yes. Over the sure. past year.
1: Yes. Uh-huh. So,
0: it, and that used to be unheard of. I had never seen a 30 point improvement. I had been teaching LSAT for 10 years and I had never seen a 30 point improvement. Then in the last five years, you know, uh, since the advent of the demon, not that the demon is wholly responsible for this, but we have seen our students improving a lot more than they used to absolutely yeah
1: you know the very first person i hired as a teacher i can't remember if she went up 30 31 or 32 points but she went up that astronomical amount i hired her and then just never saw that again for like (laughs) ever yeah And she was amazing and she was a great teacher and
0: yeah it is rare and uh you know Obviously, it's more likely that you're going to improve by 20 or more points. The lower you start, the more room you have for improvement. Yeah. So if you're at 151, I mean, obviously, 29 points is the maximum that you could even possibly improve from there. Sure. Um, what reasonably should Anonymous shoot for? That's, uh, you know, there is no like reasonable person standard for for this yeah
1: that's a fair point because what reasonable would be like most people or something like that and we're definitely telling people who go up 10 points yeah but i think you could go up more we think you could go up more so give it a try we're trying to change that mindset because yeah 10 points is amazing and everyone else is saying oh my god i can't believe you went up 10 points um you, you know apply now but
0: I Usually think you can also more on the table. <laughs> well, you can also make a pretty good argument from evidence that the best LSAT students and the best lawyers are actually unreasonable. It, it's like yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> you can't be reasonable, right? You can't be reasonable and at the top, like
0: no, yeah. you, like yeah. you you have to be if you really want to compete in the in the masters of the universe, one seventy plus, like Harvard, Stanford, Yale. You know, you might have to do an unreasonable amount of work to get there. Yeah. I'm reminded of demon teacher Allah, who proudly says that she did all of the logic games three times, hmm. you know, 400 something game, 400 games that we have to practice. And she yeah. did all of them, then did all of them again, still wasn't <laughs> where she wanted to be. Then did all of them again until yeah. it finally clicked. Uh, so <laughs> it's like impossible to answer for anonymous here. What, what should you, you know, where should you you stop? I I don't know. I don't know. It depends where you want to go to school. It depends how much you want to pay. It depends what kind of an LSAT you need to get to that kind of school at the right price. But if you're talking about Harvard, Stanford, Yale, there is no reasonable place to stop. Yeah. Like you're, you know, even with a 180, you're still not a shoe in to Harvard, Stanford, Yale. So, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Lawyers tend to be very, very sticky people. Like they're just not going to give up. There's not like a, oh, well, I'm I'm reasonably done. You know, eh, it's good enough. I'll file the file the motion now because it's reasonably good.
1: It's reasonably good. Yeah, it's reasonably persuasive. Think about those class action lawsuits that go for years, decades.
0: They dig in
1: and they say, okay, let's go roll up your sleeves.
0: (laughs) For a profession (laughs) that is built on reason and the LSAT is a test of reason. Yeah. But you, you gotta, there's some unreasonable people. It, It like they set extremely high goals for themselves and they work extremely hard for extremely long periods of time. And that's really the world you're getting yourself into. Like law school is not reasonable. Law school is going to be, you know, oh, yeah, no, The we set the median in the class. The the, the median for our exam is just going to be a 71. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So you can study your ass off. You can think that you're fully prepared and you can actually go in and do pretty well and get a 73. And it's like mm-hmm. the worst grade you've ever gotten. Yeah. But it's also above the median in this very unreasonable crucible of competition that you're, you're going to be getting yourself into.
1: Yeah. Oddly enough, that's how grades should be, right? Like you're (laughs) graded (laughs) against your peers. Our our society has gotten used to all A's and people are upset when they get an A minus, but anyway, Hey, if you're paying (laughs)
0: $65,000 a year, you know, I want the A's to show for it. I want to get my money's worth.
1: Yeah. But also those who get those A's want to say, look, I am better. Right. It
0: actually means something. Not just, yeah. oh, yeah, everybody at my school gets A's. Um, well, that's not what's going to happen in law school. It is not everybody gets A's and it's not everybody gets good lawyer jobs and mm-hmm. it's not everybody who gets good lawyer jobs keeps those good lawyer jobs. Like you're getting yourself into a realm where you're going to have to kick ass at your law school against a bunch of people who are just as smart, just as hardworking as you are. Right, mm-hmm. it's like all the hardest working people from your college. Yeah. Plus all the hardest working people and smartest people from every other college. They're the ones that are going to law school. Yep. And then you're going to compete with them on a strict curve. Then the law firms are going to come in and they're only going to hire the people who outperform. Because they want to win. They don't want to lose. They want to win. So they hire the people who have already been winning in law school grade competitions. Then <laughs> as an associate, they're going to just systematically wash out everybody but the best. It's just winnowing and winnowing and winnowing, right? Until you get to the really like the most unreasonable motherfuckers who are willing to just like dedicate their entire being to winning. I'm not saying that's what every LSAT student needs to do. But you do have to be conscious of the fact that that's your competition. And like the, the farther you go in law, the more and more that's going to be your competition.
1: Yeah. Well, the only thing I was thinking of is uh, Bethany. She, I've mentioned her on this podcast several times before. She was a student of mine early on. And she was one of those people who did the class. The class was two to three months. I think she ended somewhere around the mid 140s. Like she started low 140s, ended mid high 140s. And then I just kept getting emails from her for two years. And then it was like, oh, I got a 172 and I got into Northwestern.
0: Damn. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In fact, well, that reminds me of, I God, I forget his name now, but he was, I I've mentioned him on the show before too. I, I did, I think I misspoke earlier. I do remember now one 30 point improvement, Mm. but it was a similar thing. It was. Took my class, struggled, didn't really seem to be making the improvement, but kept emailing me. Mm-hmm. Kept asking questions, kept coming back, used the books that I gave out in class, like went through the entire logical reasoning encyclopedia, you know, like really did. It was just clear that this guy was putting in hours and hours, days and days, like months and years. And I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, I, I would definitely give up if I was that guy. Mm. And I still would give up if I was that guy, (laughs) you know, like, I don't want to work that hard at something that I'm, that I'm clearly struggling on. I just don't have it in me, Mm -hmm. but he did. And he had the, um, he had an army background and he's just worse. He's just used to, you know, having his ass kicked and working every single day on impossible things. And he eventually like 2 years later i think he ended up going to berkeley and i think he went from like 139 to 169 or something like that but it was a multi year process it's something that from the, like an outside observer would say you're being unreasonable and it could even be like your parents your peers your friends who were in law school and they're all telling you oh don't worry about it you know 160 is a great score just stop, stop at one, just apply now, you know, you'll get in. Oh, you'll borrow some money. It's not a big deal. You know, you'll just be You'll be in law school.
1: You'll be able to pay it off. It's, you got a legal degree, blah, blah, blah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and so it's, it's like <laughs> when it's your, when it's people who are already in law school, that's like misery loves company, right? They're, they're like trying <laughs> to get you to make the same bad decision that they made.
1: Yeah. But yeah,
0: when it's your, when it's your family, you know, they, They want what's best for you. They just don't know what's best for you. And so they might tell you that, oh, well, it's, you know, you've already improved by nine points. That's great. Why why would, you know, you seem to be struggling. You seem like you're at a plateau now. So why don't you just take the test and go to law school? And that's a choice you could make, but it's not the choice that we would recommend because with another eight points or 10 points of improvement, you might end up saving yourself (laughs) hundreds of thousands of dollars on law school or you might end up going to a truly great law school instead of just the okay law school that you were about to go to.
1: Yeah, 100%. By the way, I remembered the uh, other thing I was going to say. Okay. And that is that we're focusing on these scores, but the question here is, when do I know I plateaued, right? When do I know I've reached my potential? I can't go any further. Look at the questions that you're getting wrong. Yeah. Can you figure them out? Can you unpack them? I think, you know, a lot of plateaus or highest potential is just in your head. And it's, can you dig in and ask questions and make sense of that? If you can, then there's a higher chance that you'll get that kind of question right
0: again. Yeah. We sometimes see students who are scoring 169 or 172 and they feel like they really, they've really got it. Mm -hmm. They really get it totally get it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But 169 is not 179. Uh, 169 means that you've missed several questions on that test. And that handful of questions is telling you, Hey, here's some shit you don't actually got. Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, I, I agree with that advice. I would, I would tell anonymous to just always keep ruthlessly investigating your mistakes, you know, never stop. Yeah. At some point. Sure. I mean, we all have like a, there's a point where you just tap out, right? There's a point where you just can't do another rep or you can't, I don't know, probably that is not the greatest analogy, but there's a, there's a point where you are going to decide that that's enough for you.
1: Yeah, or you're happy with the schools you can go to for free or nearly free with the LSAT you're likely to get. So you just end it. Yep. Great. Well, hopefully that was helpful. I feel like the title of this episode is going to be winnowing, winnowing, winnowing. <laughs> um, this next one's from Madison. The subject is LSAT equals practice test. Does not test?
0: equal.
1: Does not equal practice test. Yeah, I was wondering what was going on there. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm a longtime listener, recent Demon subscriber, and I just took the LSAT for the first time. I've been studying diligently since August. I have a 3.91 and I'm serious about getting into an elite school. Elite is in air quotes, aiming for HYS, that's Harvard, Yale, Stanford, hoping to land among the stars. I take your advice very seriously since using the Demon for around two months. I have seen serious improvement. I went from an average score of 170 to most recently scoring two 177s in a row. After the 177s and after missing the registration deadline for the February LSAT,
0: big oops. That was her words.
1: um, I decided to shoot my shot and take the January LSAT.
0: (laughs) Which you should have. There's no, you definitely should be taking the test. I mean, this is actually advice for for anonymous above too. 177 on repeated practice tests. That's the same as 180. I mean, it, yeah. it, like as far as whether you're ready or not, yes, you're ready. That's 99.9th yeah. percentile. That's above the 75th percentile for Yale. Mm-hmm. If your practice tests are above the 75th percentile for Yale, take the damn test. But shoot your shot. <laughs> but plan, But yeah. But it's not your singular shot. Yeah. It's, Shoot your first of five shots. You've got yep. five bullets in the clip, and you are ready if you've scored 177 on a timed practice test. Just one 177 is enough for me to say, go ahead and fire your first bullet. Multiple 177s definitely means fire your first bullet. But when I say fire your first bullet, I mean also keep firing until the clip is empty. Yep. Right, You don't just take it once, you take it multiple times because only your high score counts. So I don't know, I don't know what Madison's going to ask next, but my advice is keep taking the official test until you're out of attempts.
1: She continues, long story short, I'm near positive that I scored in the 160s. I felt very panicky about time and even ran out of time on games, which I had been zeroed out on for months. My question to you are, my questions to you are, how do I convince myself that the LSAT is just another practice test? How should I practice to ease my time anxiety on test day, especially on reading comp? Thank you so much for all your help.
0: (laughs) I'm very much reminded right now of a former student of mine who had really similar practice test scores, who also had good grades in undergrad, who also had elite aspirations Who also was sure that they had scored in the 160s on their official test, wanted permission to cancel. (laughs) I said I wouldn't cancel if I were you. They did not cancel. They got a 178 on their official test. So, Madison, we don't even know what your actual score is. We don't. Yeah. This is this. It's like echoes what we were talking about with the unreasonable people that we were talking about in the previous for, for anonymous above in the show, because yeah, Madison is exactly the unreasonable type of person that I'm talking about. You're doing great, Madison. You need to keep firing. Yeah. The way you make the, the official LSAT feel like it's just another practice test is you schedule multiple official tests. Mm -hmm. You don't have to actually register for them until you get closer to the deadline, but they should all be on your calendar take it in April, take it in June. Then if you still don't have your, your best possible score, plan on taking it in August, take it one more time sometime in the fall, just take the next four official attempts and then you're done with it. But if you know, you're going to do that, then yeah, you know, that attempt number one is a practice test for attempt number two.
1: I totally agree. I wouldn't say any more. I think that's the easiest way to get your mind wrapped around the idea that this is not that big of a deal.
0: If you've not heard our advice on this before, you know, we, we have a couple other tips like don't do different special shit for the official test. Don't like, you know, take the week off of work before your official test. You didn't do that for your practice test. So why are you doing that for your official test? Don't stop drinking coffee. Don't start drinking coffee. Don't change things about your routine. Just go about your regular business. Don't give the test too much respect. It's going to take you half of a Saturday. Half a Saturday. Big deal. You can do anything for half a Saturday. It's just not a big deal unless you make it into a big deal. And the more people try to perfectly engineer their official test day, the less they're treating it like it's a practice test. Any tips for time anxiety generally or especially on reading comp?
1: You always just come, you got to come back to what you're doing right now. And often that's a conscious choice to refocus. And when you're slipping and starting to think about time, you just come back to the best way to do this section quickly, ironically, is not to worry about that and to worry about what you're supposed to be doing right now.
0: Yeah. You have to slow down to speed up and we all have to remind ourselves of this all the time. I I mean, I don't know, maybe not you, Ben, because you're kind of a a perfect human, but um, I'm in, (laughs) I'm in my, uh, I'm in my uh, double black diamond class that I taught yesterday. Yeah. And the agenda for that class is always overstuffed. So it's supposed to be a one hour class, but I always go over time because I want to go deep into the questions and answer everybody's questions and be interactive and, you know, not just answer the question and move on, but to like, actually dive, go deep and get, you know, really thoroughly understand why is the right answer, right? Why is the wrong answer wrong? You know, and, uh, (laughs) but what happens is I all, I feel badly (laughs) that I'm going over on the agenda. Mm -hmm. So I tend to go faster and faster as we get deeper into the agenda yeah. So mm-hmm. then what happens? I start fucking up. Yeah. I misread something, you know, I misread something in the passage. I misread something in one of the answer choices. Next thing you know, I don't have any good answers that I like. Oh God, I have to start over or I have two answers that I like, which also is bad because I'm not being critical enough of the answers when I read them. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's like a disaster. I mean, not a disaster, but it's, it's a small It's a small accident every time. And it's like, yeah, dude, you're good at the LSAT, but you're not good at the LSAT when you go faster than you're capable of going. So Madison, you're plenty good at reading comp. No one scores 177 without being damn good at reading comp. But if you try to go faster, it's only going to slow you down and cause you accuracy problems. And it's going to build this panic and, you know, (laughs) <laughs> you've got to avoid that by just letting the test be easy by going slowly and carefully. Then you start predicting the answers to the questions, which is nice. You start immediately recognizing how bad the wrong answers are. You know, like I, if I'm racing, I read the whole answer choice really quickly. And then I'm thinking, Oh, well, uh, yeah, I don't know if I, <laughs> yeah. if I read it, slower, I might know for certain that it's wrong halfway through it. Yeah. So what's better? Read the whole thing super fast and be confused or read the whole thing, read half of it slowly and know it's wrong and just be like, oh yeah, next. That's how the LSAT feels when you're doing it the right way. So Madison, you know what that feels like because you don't score 177 without knowing what that feels like. I want to say just one more thing. Don't forget about Carl, who is at Yale now. What's Carl, like a 3L at Yale?
1: Yeah, he must be.
0: I always just try to estimate what I, I think, what, it, what I really think it is. And then and I then just add, a add one <laughs> or two. <laughs> <laughs> like, Carl, like the truth is, Carl's probably been practicing law for like five years now. But anyway, Carl went to <laughs> Yale. Uh, he still tutors with us. Carl, Carl went to Yale with a 179. He did not finish his reading comprehension. He guessed on one or two questions at the end of his reading comprehension. Mm. And he still scored a 179.
1: Yeah.
0: That's badass. That's awesome. That's how, that's yeah. how you do it is yeah. you just realize like, oh, well, I, I don't need to finish. Mm-hmm. I just need to get the ones right that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I need to get this one right that I'm doing right now. If I do that one, then I just move on to the next one. <laughs> but I can't do the next one until I'm done with this one. So that time, that time anxiety, Madison, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a symptom of you not focusing on the question in front of you. It's like a symptom and a cause of you not focusing on the question in front of you. Great. Anything more for Madison?
1: No, thanks for writing in Madison. Uh, keep us posted and keep taking those shots. This next one is from Erica. The subject is I read two textbooks about logic games and still failed (laughs) exclamation point. Yikes
0: um reading textbooks about logic games is not how you do logic games the way you do logic games is you practice logic games you have to do logic games it's like reading two books about bicycle theory Uh, i read two books about how the the theory and the mechanics and oh man i know all the physics and i know everything i know
1: (laughs) how does someone balance on two wheels like there is some serious Cognitive shit going on there. Yeah. And I I'm understand go get a physics it. degree. <laughs> yeah. You know,
0: I'm going to go get a physics degree or so a science I I, degree. Yeah. I can prove to you that a bicycle is capable of riding on two wheels. You know, like I'll, I'll explain it. I'll totally explain it to you. Mathematically, I'll fill up all the chalkboards. Yeah. But that still doesn't mean I can ride a bike because I haven't yeah. yet gotten on a bike and tried to ride it. Anyway, maybe we should read Erica's actual email. Yeah. All right, I'll do that. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I studied for the LSAT by reading two textbooks about logic games in the academic year I took my LSAT. I see the names of those two books, but I'm not going to shit on yeah, them. Yeah,
1: two very different approaches, I think, too, maybe.
0: hmm Yep. Interesting. I also read through a logical reasoning textbook while using LSAT demon to practice more... In between. Hmm. See, there is no in between. The demon is available 24 hours a day. Yeah. Why would you switch horses midstream? Don't be working <laughs> on logical reasoning with us. And then, oh, let me go read this other textbook about logical reasoning. Let me see what they have to say about it. Where did you come up
1: with that analogy? It is kind of switching horses because, midstream. Yeah. If you do, you're going to get all wet.
0: And no, switching horses. That's a, it's a. I mean, I don't want to say it's like a common phrase, but that's a—it's an idiom of sorts. That's a known idiom, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, hmm. yeah. Never heard it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely don't want to do that.
0: Yep. No, you can't. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. Like if you if you trust us, which mm-hmm. you know maybe you don't, and if you don't, farewell. I mean, there's all kinds of other things you could go do with your prep. That's totally fine. I'm not. We're not for everybody. But Mm -hmm. if you believe that we're telling you the truth, and if you believe that, that we have, you know, I've got 15 years of experience. Ben has 15 years of experience. I've written multiple books. Ben created the LSAT demon with some help from me. We, we've seen students improve 25, 30, and 30 points. Like we, we have all these amazing reviews and stuff. If, if you're going to study with us, then just study with us. We're telling you, you don't need anything else. You don't want anything else. No, it will hurt you. It will not help you. It'll make it worse. It'll make it harder, more confusing. It's just, you're going to muddy the waters with anything else. If you're studying our way, then just please do it our way. Anyway, Erica continues. However, when it came to taking the actual LSAT on January 12th, The Logic Games section left me surprisingly dumbfounded. After so much reading, I looked at what seemed so easy and had no idea what to do. Especially with the timer, I'm sure I missed most of the questions as I failed to make appropriate worlds. I felt I did fine on all the other sections and usually perform well there, but how do you think I should go about improving my Logic Games performance? Thanks so much.
1: Start drilling. Start doing games. (laughs) And doing the best you can with them. And then learning from your actual mistakes, get on the bike, start riding, fall off.
0: Do not read the book about bicycle riding theory or the mechanics of bicycle, whatever, or physics book about how a bicycle works. Just get on a damn bike and you're going to crash a couple times, but then, then you're going to know how to ride a bike forever. And it's, but you've got to actually do it. I'm reminded of that, uh, I don't know if it's a study or something. I've cited this before on the podcast. Um, That thing about people watching videos of uh, the pull the tablecloth out from under the fully set table. You know that? Yeah,
1: the perception of competence versus actual competence.
0: Watching an instructional video on how to do that makes people think that they can do it. Mm -hmm. Watching the instructional video and actually practicing it leads people to a lesser degree of uh, confidence, but a higher degree of competence because they've actually tried to do it. It's more likely that you're going to actually learn how to do it, but you're also going to be kind of less confident in your skills because if you just sit back passively and watch an expert do it over and over, then yeah, it's going to seem easy. If you go to Ben's class and just watch Ben do logic games on the whiteboard, then, oh, simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. But Ben's never going to stop telling you in every class, try it on your own, do it yourself first, crash and burn, then watch the video so that you can see how I did it. And even then don't watch the whole video. Just watch a little bit to where you get like, oh, I see how we might be able to crack this. Okay, sure. And then just pause and work on it for 10 minutes on your own you'll probably crash and burn again. You'll get stuck somewhere. Oh, what'd I do wrong? Okay, now watch some more of the video and see if you can get yourself unstuck. But you've got to actually do it. I get the sense here that Erica also is not, has not been timing herself at all. It's like on the official test, you know, with the timer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it's like, whoa. Well, you know, I mean, the demon has timed sections and timed tests. And if you're not doing You know, I don't care if you never do a full time test, but you should definitely be doing timed sections regularly. And Erica didn't mention doing a timed section once in all this that she's talking about. (laughs) She did take a break and read a logical reasoning textbook, which isn't going to help you with your games. You want to have the last word for Erica?
1: You got to practice like you're going to play. So you got to do what you're going to do on test day.
0: So that means do timed sections because test day is going to be timed.
1: Do drilling, do these things that are the actual work. You're going to be uncomfortable, but that's precisely why you get better. Because that discomfort is what shows you where you suck and then you start to get better. All right. This next one is a survey result. My dad sent me this. It's called The Top Global Risks in 2024, according to fourteen no, 1,500 leaders. I don't know who they surveyed exactly, but the World Economic Forum surveyed these leaders. And the question was, please select up to five risks that you believe are most likely to present a material crisis on a global scale in 2024. I'm not super interested in necessarily these results or it's mildly interesting to see what these people think is going to likely present a material crisis on a global scale next year or this year. But I thought, Hey, it's a survey. The LSAT does surveys all the time. So we can talk about how you might want to think (laughs) about survey results and whether they're valid or invalid and when to question them. Uh, The top five here, by the way, um, you want to
0: read those? Sure. The top five are 66% of the respondents picked extreme weather as Hmm. one of their, uh, again, what is it? Five risks that you believe are most likely to present a material crisis on a global scale in 2024.
1: And material there means serious.
0: Or substantial, or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like real, actual Mm -hmm. crisis, crisis on a global scale.
1: This is some serious shit.
0: (laughs) I mean, crisis on a global scale—that's like war, like right, like or something like that. Like world war would be crisis on a global scale. Yeah. Um. Okay. So number one, extreme weather. Yeah, I mean, we've, we see <laughs> that's pretty much constant, right? Summer and winter. Yeah. Uh, So that's not very surprising. Next one, AI generated misinformation slash disinformation. Hmm. That sounds like something that has been like in the news a lot. It's just like, yeah, because my, my first Top thought of was, yeah, when I wish that I had the opportunity to actually answer this poll because mm-hmm. it would, I would have been really interested in what I picked mm-hmm. versus what all of these world leaders at the world economic forum. Yeah. What they think is, is going to um, be a global risk, but AI generated misinformation slash disinformation. It's like, yeah, I i think that that's clearly a problem, but Is it going to lead to a material crisis on a global scale?
1: Okay. I'm trying to think of it from a leader's perspective. Maybe they're looking at the masses and saying, look, a lot of people get up in arms about things that are just not even true, and this creates serious problems for governing. I don't know.
0: Serious problems for governing is not a material crisis on a global scale, right? Well, if
1: it leads to armed conflict, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, number three is societal and or political polarization. That seems very related to the previous item about AI generated misinformation and disinformation. Yes. I mean, the polarization that we are experiencing in the United States seems to be from everybody being in either the red bubble, which is lying to you, or the blue bubble, which is lying to you.
1: Yeah, this like silo effect, right? Mm-hmm. I remember this book I read called Super Forecasters. Do you remember me telling you about this mm. before? No. Um, I would check it out. It's, it's really interesting. What they did is they took people... And they had them, they asked them specific questions about current events. They said, what do you think is likely to happen? For example, there was maybe, uh, and they were very precise. So there might be some ship off the coast of Iran or something. And they said, how likely do you think it is that that ship is going to fire upon a Iranian ship or something like that? Right. I can't remember. It was very precise. And they would ask, they asked hundreds of people these kinds of questions. And then they um, compared, obviously, you're going to get some of those things right. And you're going to get some of those things wrong. And they tried to see if there were any groups of people or any individuals who outperformed others consistently. Okay. And they called these people and they did find Super forecasters. Yeah. And they had to do actually multiple studies because there was something about like, the problem you know random chance of someone oh yeah
0: yeah yeah the survivor bias of like stock pickers hedge funds that sort of thing like mm-hmm. the ones that you know they look like geniuses but well some of them are going to get their picks right even yeah. if it's just random so yeah. how long have they been able to keep this up
1: how long have they been able to keep this up so they had yeah. these people come back into like another study and then they found people who identified as four super forecasters There were a lot of takeaways from that book, but the one that I remember most prominently was that super forecasters have a tendency, an inclination to seek out information from sources that they don't normally, uh, not that they don't normally, but that they're not, (laughs) ironically, they're inclined to seek out information from sources that they would normally not seek out information from. Ah. So they have this tendency to go to multiple sources, conflicting mm, sources, mm. and then try to combine that information together to to suss out the truth.
0: Mm. And so the siloing is a big problem if you're gonna try to accurately, you know, accurately forecast the state of the world. The siloing is a is a big problem. So social media is like is really problematic, right? Um, Yeah, where people are, you know, like Trump and a whole bunch of supporters left, or he got kicked off Twitter and then founded truth social. And so then a whole bunch of followers went into their own silo there. Mm -hmm. Then now the same thing is happening. It seems like with X, like there's this blog that I read and it seems like all of the writers there have left Twitter slash X to go to blue sky. Blue sky. Okay. I think it's called blue sky. I don't know. I'm not on it, obviously. But, the, you know, if if that's where all these people are now going to share news and opinion.
1: Yeah, it becomes an echo chamber, right? Like, well, that's this is our good. view of yeah. the world. This is our perception of reality. I want to go they-
0: hang out in social media where people where people agree with me. Yeah. So they're going to post things that reinforce my uh, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to post things that are going to reinforce their ideas. And we're all going to just plus one each other all day. And then you get more <laughs> and more
1: angry because you're just like, I, I it just I, I thought that this was the case. And it definitely is the case. Look, Joe said it, too. Yeah. And it's like, and oh, then my I can't God, i even so-
0: believe what these fuckers over How there they- are saying because they're saying, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because they're never, ever exposed to any kind of. Yeah. Hmm. OK. Yes. OK. Polarization. That is a good one. Again, I want to go back to the material crisis on a global scale. I mean, (laughs) people yelling (laughs) on social media (laughs) is pretty ineffectual, right? I mean, now, of course, people could say, well, but it'll start wars.
1: Or I guess it could, I mean, it could explain the political environment that we're in, where we're looking at candidates who neither one of which anyone is super happy with, but they have this power... Because they have this base that just totally believes, it
0: seems. Oh, and it's red team versus blue team. I mean, it's just, yeah. Uh, Number four cost of living crisis. Hmm. Okay. So inflation is that just poverty or is that inflation?
1: I don't know. It sounds like inflation. Cost of living could be both, I guess. It's weird they threw in the word crisis. as opposed to just cost of living
0: (laughs) that's already like a survey (laughs) error right we were going to talk about poll errors and the things on the lsat that they commonly do but i can just see here like throwing the word crisis into the answer choice when the question included the word crisis it's like there are some people who are just going to be like crisis crisis yeah that's a crisis you know (laughs) yeah so that's kind of silly uh number Mm. five is cyber attacks i don't know how far we want to go down into this uh
1: yeah, I don't know how far we want to go. Whole that's result. the first 5. It looks like 7 is the escalation or outbreak of armed conflict. That seems more serious. Um,
0: well, that would be like that's an existential, like that's properly a crisis, right? Oh,
1: look at this too. Accidental or intentional nuclear event. Like that's <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a material well, crisis, especially on if a that's global related scale. to war. Right. Yeah. If it's just a, another reactor meltdown or whatever, that's like not that oh, big of sure. a deal or sure. a single, a single missile that actually I was thinking of an actual bomb, but yeah. Yeah. It, well, if it, I mean, and even one missile getting fired is like not the end of the world unless all the other missiles fire. Yeah. <laughs> but then that brings us back to, um, <laughs> which, where was it? Oh yeah. No. Wait, one of them is war you said.
1: Yeah, one of them, number seven. Oh,
0: escalation or outbreak of armed conflict. Yeah. 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 That I mean, that seems the most likely to me that I I don't know how it kicks off, but, you know, China invades Taiwan or um, Russia goes farther in Ukraine and gets help. And, you know, who knows? Like, but there are things that could set off some pretty bad shit, it seems. Hmm.
1: It's interesting. It's almost like some people read this question and they're like, "What do They read it as what is most likely to happen versus what is most likely to happen and create this material crisis on a global scale. If you have that extra filter, you would, in theory, ignore some of these things, even if they're likely to happen because you don't, they're not really going to be that serious.
0: Yeah. On a global scale. My, it's also like, there's such a problem with recency bias because whatever you've been listening to recently or reading recently is going to be like just top of mind. I would have definitely picked institutional collapse within the financial sector.
1: Yes. I saw that one as well. And I was like, as soon as that shit starts happening, everybody panics. And
0: (laughs) well, we (laughs) saw what happened in 2008. I mean, that was pretty bad. That was a big, that was a big recession Yeah. And it was because of these Wall Street dudes creating crazy uh, derivative products that nobody really understands and selling them to retirement funds and things. And then next thing you know, we've got like stock market crash and banks failing and that type of thing can cause big, big problems like that really can cause material crisis on a global scale. But I had been listening to a podcast Um, Mm -hmm. and they had been talking about that, you know, specifically with AI trading algorithms and it's like, Hey, nobody even knows what these algorithms are doing and everybody's using them. (laughs) And it's like, we better have these safeguards in place to shut down the markets or whatever if they get out of whack, because they, if the traders themselves don't even understand what the algorithms are doing, then yeah, that can cause some pretty weird shit to happen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hey, hmm. so let's simplify this a little bit and just focus on the top uh the top one, extreme weather, right?
0: Extreme so weather. If the,
1: okay. If the if the LSAT told us that the World Economic Forum surveyed 1490 liters or 1490 liters on the top global risks in 2024, and they concluded that the top risk was extreme weather. Ah. Yeah, how would you feel about, what does that survey tell us? What does it not tell us?
0: Yeah, well, normally on the LSAT, they would go from there to reach some conclusion, right? Sure. But it, it is useful to stop and and uh, like kind of poke around the edges before mm-hmm. we even get to the conclusion that they're going to make. Um, I could attack this on many, many grounds. I mean, sure. So, first thing is, who are these fourteen hundred and ninety leaders that you surveyed? Yeah, like because if you are going to then conclude, okay, so it, it could conclude, therefore, in my country, yeah, of Canada, let's <laughs> say we should be worried about you know our number one priority should be extreme weather. Yep. Uh, but if these fourteen hundred and ninety leaders all came from like equatorial countries. Mm -hmm. tropical countries, island countries Mm -hmm. that, you know, Bali or whatever that might just disappear because of rising sea levels. Yep. If these 1490 liters all come from a completely different part of the world, totally differently situated, then they might be right to worry about extreme weather, but maybe a place like Canada is going to go, eh, whatever. Whatever. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> We're fine. We're huge. Yeah. And if it gets a little warmer, it's not going to hurt us.
1: Yep. Okay. So that is, what would we call that? That's just the, the sample is not representative of your particular situation. Something yeah. like that. W-
0: one really important caveat here. And a producer Eric pointed this out right away, which is you've got to be really careful about accusing them of having a biased sample mm-hmm. because if this were a weaken question and there was an answer that said the, the country in question is a North pole country and the 1490 leaders were all selected from equatorial countries, yep, then that would be a great weakener. So if mm-hmm. that's true, then that puts them in a big hole, right? They're in a, they're yep. in a bad spot there. So it's a great weakener. But the problem is that they'll invite you to choose an answer like there's a biased sample on a flaw question.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I actually don't have evidence here that the sample is flawed. This is called don't the know World anything. Economic yeah. Forum. Totally. It's a big sample, almost 1,500 different people responding to the survey at something mm-hmm. called the World Economic Forum. And as far as I know they very well might be perfectly representative of the entire globe. They totally could. Or they all might have even come from my country. Yeah. (laughs) Which would make them even more likely to give good advice about what my country should do if that was the conclusion of the argument. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that people recognize the difference between a flaw question and a weakened question when they're attacking survey results. I think in general, we can assume that the sample is probably representative unless they give us reason to believe that it's not.
1: Yes, I agree with that at the same time. I could see it. I don't want to get too tied up in question type because I could see a flaw question that easily really on some level is a weakened question. And it could say the argument fails to consider the possibility that the leaders are all from an... Sure, there is that, right? When it says
0: fails, if an answer says fails to consider the possibility that then you kind of take off your flaw cap and you put on your weekend cap because you go, well, they did fail to consider this possibility. They never mentioned this possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Now is this possibility a problem? Oh yeah. If it's a biased sample, then that's a problem. Yep. I I just want to make sure that you're not accusing them of a biased sample. You're not picking an answer that says the sample is biased. Yeah. If it says fails to consider the possibility that the sample is biased, then that's different.
1: Yes, you'd have to know that it's biased. It would have to give you that fact in the passage, something like the World Economic Forum surveyed 1490 leaders from Africa. it's like, oh, okay, why did you do that? And (laughs) and even then, if the conclusion were about Africa, then fine. But if it were about something else or about the world in general, which is what they usually do, it's not like they explicitly jump somewhere else. They just kind of step back a little bit. And you go, wait a sec. Um, I mean, one thing they did tell us here, though, is they did tell us that it was leaders, right? So you could say, do Mm. leaders really know what's best or scientists? Maybe they would know better. I mean, there could be a bias in the fact that we're just talking about leaders instead of.
0: Well, and I think the thing that that that, that point illustrates now is that you can basically attack every single word of the evidence. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. this is at the world economic forum.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Oh,
0: so you're only asking economists what they think.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, economists might have a vastly different view of the world than political scientists or sociologists or physicians or who knows what else. Yeah. So there's a potential problem with the survey. I was thinking that the the structure of this survey seems like it's open to some like how did they settle like how did they pick these choices in the first place?
1: Yeah, did the survey itself
0: present them? Well, it seems like it did because it said select up to 5 risks that you believe are most likely to present a material crisis and then if they've produced this bar chart, it must be that people were choosing, right? From multiple choice.
1: Yeah. And then, and so then there's so much baked into the assumptions of the survey creators, right? Like, Oh, you don't see a difference between societal and political polarization and AI generated misinformation. Like those two things seem related.
0: Well, you could also water down the support for any one option by listing it multiple times.
1: Yep. Right.
0: Or slightly different things. Like The number one thing here is extreme weather. And are there any other question? Are there any other answer choices that are even about climate change? No, they're not. So if, if anybody was, if you were worried about hurricanes, you're picking that. If you were worried about earthquakes, you're picking that. If you were worried about rising sea levels, you're picking that. Yeah. No matter what your interest, you know, it's like, that's a big category and there's only one of them. And if they had, they could have chopped up the support for that by, by having three different options that were related to extreme weather. And who knows, maybe those would have all then all also been in the top five, but it's more likely that AI generated misinformation would have been number one on the list. And then the support for the weather would all be down, you know, like lower in the results.
1: Yeah. Well, also check this out to your point. Exactly. Escalation or outbreak of armed conflict is one option. Attacks on critical infrastructure is also an option. Those seem related. Accidental or intentional nuclear event that seems related to violence. Violent civil strikes and riots also related. So can I
0: get you to start saying nuclear? I really want to say nuclear.
1: What did I say? Nuclear. Nuclear. Uh Nuclear.
0: (laughs) It's nuclear. Yeah. Nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. That's what I
1: said. Multiple people must say that because yeah, George W.
0: Bush over? and lots of other people say that. Yeah, you you could, but we we'll work on it. <laughs> we'll work on it. I'm sure okay. I say all <laughs> kinds of shit wrong all the time. Yeah, so you yeah. Can Feel free to bust my balls about it.
1: That's all right. Uh, well, here here's another one. Is I was also thinking about the fact that like shorter answers are easier to just like visualize and digest. Extreme uh, weather, cyber attacks, right? And yeah. it does look like. Um, some of these longer ones are later. I mean, I don't know. The, the takeaway here, right, is when you get a survey, ironically, the more details they give you about the survey, the easier it is to attack. If they just yeah. say, scientists have found that frogs, you know, migrate in November, you, you don't know how they found that. So you just kind of have to, recognize, okay, one, that's not a fact. It is a finding. So I don't know for sure if it's 100% true, but at the same time, how do I question their methodology? Because I don't know anything about it. The more they say about the methodology, the more it's an opportunity to attack it. The other thing I wanted to say here is that this is a survey, so and it's a survey about what these leaders think. And of course, what they think is not the same as what is actually true.
0: Yeah. And another thing, we only know exactly what they've said. We don't know what they mean. So sure. th- I could see, I could see a, you know, number one here was extreme weather. I could see a conclusion that says, therefore scientists are, uh, or sorry, economic leaders are primarily concerned with climate change. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a second. They said extreme weather. They didn't say climate change. Climate change Mm -hmm. was not on the survey. Extreme Mm -hmm. weather was on the survey. Mm -hmm. These people might not even believe that climate change is real. As far as I know, they just, they might just not like winter.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: So you've got to stick to like the exact thing that they said, and you can use, you know, synonyms. So for extreme weather, it could say, you know, unusual, unusual, high variance climactic conditions or something like that. Now that means the same thing. It doesn't mean the same thing as global warming though, right? So you can allow them some wiggle room as long as the meaning doesn't change. But the second the meaning changes, then you have to attack on that. Totally. All right. Thanks for cool. uh, sharing that survey. That was fun.
1: Yeah. All right. So this next one is from you.
0: Yeah, I was listening to the No Stupid Questions podcast, which I believe you might have listened to in the yeah, past. the
1: it's, Freakonomics uh, guy, right?
0: Well, it's Angela Duckworth now who hosts it with a different guy. Um, oh, okay. Dubner is doing other things, running the Freakonomics podcast and the whole Freakonomics podcast network. But No Stupid Questions is one of the shows. Angela Duckworth, and I forget the name of the guy who co-hosts it with her now, but um just ran across a phrase that I felt was really useful for teaching logic games for, for 15 years I've been teaching logic games and I've been teaching people about how to make worlds. And one thing that I try to get across to people is that the worlds need to be mutually exclusive, first of all. So, you know, you're not going to have the same exact solution present in more than one of your worlds. If you if you do, then that means you didn't make your worlds properly to begin with because you just really shouldn't. It should be like, no, here's a world where, a, where uh, X goes first and here's a world where X goes last. And there's not going to be a, a solution that includes both of those things.
1: Yes, yes. When you're splitting, you're always splitting on the basis of something and you're picking maybe two options or three options or four options, and that forces each world to be unique, right? And that's very important because if you see that something can happen in two worlds, you now know that, okay, if the question is asking, um, I'm trying to think of the question that would test this, Yeah, it's the
0: ones that are like, which one would uh, allow, uh, the fully determined, that's the words you're looking
1: for. Fully determined, yeah. Or even in like... um, must be true questions, right? If two worlds allow for that, then you're like, oh, that doesn't have to be true because Mm -hmm. there must not be, you know, Mm -hmm. anyways, but that is only possible because you know, each world is unique. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Yeah. Good point. So
0: mutually exclusive. I've been saying that for probably 15 years. Like that's pretty straightforward that you just want to make sure that it's like, well, when I'm making a split, it's going to be either that, or it's going to be that but it can't be both at the same time. Like the, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making a split for a reason. There's these okay. sets of solutions and then there's this set of, solu- you know, it's not, yep. we're not going to be doing both at once. Yeah. Um, cause like for example, like you you're not going to make a world where X is first and then a world where Y is fifth. Yeah. Because why can't X be first in the world where Y is fifth? Why can't Y be fifth in the world where X is first? Those are not mutually exclusive. So when we're making splits, they need to be mutually exclusive. The other part of this phrase, so the phrase is that I heard on No Stupid Questions was collectively exhaustive and mutually exclusive. So the first part of that, the collectively exhaustive, I've always stumbled on that trying to. I've been telling my classes like, well, so when you're making a split.
1: Cover. I think what I said
0: is I think I said it encompasses all possibilities. That's what I would always say. Okay. Mutually exclusive and encompasses all possibilities. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just liked that phrase collectively exhaustive instead of saying encompasses all possibilities collectively exhaustive. So what that means is that if I'm going to make two worlds, a world where X is first and a world where X is fifth, then that means that X can't ever go second, third, or fourth.
1: Yeah. Or you're not a doing world your where X properly. is first
0: yep. and a world where X is fifth is collectively exhaustive. If there's a rule that says X has to go first or fifth. Yep. Right? But if there's not a rule that says X has to go first or fifth, then I don't get to just, well, here's what happens when X goes first and here's what happens when X goes fifth. That happens a lot when people see conditional rules. So let's say there's a conditional rule that says if X is first, Y has to be third. And then there's another rule that says if X is fifth, then Y has to be fourth. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people will think that they are making worlds by, oh, here's X first, here's X fifth. And then they apply those rules. Oh, when X is first, Y has to be fourth. And when X is fifth, then Y has to be third or whatever it was. And then they think that they have their worlds now. But there was no rule that said X can't go second or third yeah. or fourth. Yeah. Yeah. And you're leaving out all of those worlds where X goes second or third or fourth. Your worlds are not collectively exhaustive. And I, I call that um, just like random scenarios. You're just like making random scenarios. We're never making random scenarios. So the thing I'm going to start telling my students in the, you know, I've been teaching games for 15 years. Uh, The irony is that I will only be teaching games for six more months because the games are going away with the June LSAT. Yeah. Uh, But for the next six months, I'm going to get to say collectively exhaustive and mutually exclusive is what we're looking for. So that means that at, And this is a really kind of an important um, corollary is that this is true at every step. So at every single step, every time I make a split, my game board, my scratch paper, the solutions that I have on the board, they are always, always collectively exhaustive and mutually exclusive at every single step. So. Let's take my example of having, um, a couple of conditional rules. Like maybe the, maybe there's a rule that says if X is first, Y has to be fourth. Mm -hmm. I can make a collectively exhaustive, mutually exclusive split based on that rule. I make a world where X is first and I make a world where X is not first because X is always either first or not first. So if I have a solution where X is first and I have a solution where X is not first, then those are collectively exhaustive at that step. They're already collectively exhaustive. All solutions have to either have X first or X not first. They're also mutually exclusive because X can't be first and not first at the same time. So just that one split, right? And that would enable me, by the way, to kill that conditional rule. The conditional rule was if X is first, Y has to be fourth. Okay, so I've got a world where X is first and a world where X is not first. In the world where X is first, I put Y fourth because that's what the rule said. In the world where X is not first, the rule doesn't apply. The rule only applies when X is first. So I don't have to think about the contrapositive. I don't have to write down the contrapositive. I don't have to worry about whether Y is or isn't fourth in that world. I don't care. X is not first, then I don't care where Y goes. In my world where X is first, I have Y fourth. And with that one split, I've eliminated one rule. And I have collectively exhaustive, mutually exclusive worlds. If I want to split further, I can. Right? There was another rule that I was proposing, which was like, if X is fifth, then something happens. Well, my split there, to keep my worlds being collectively exhaustive and mutually exclusive... In the world where X is first, obviously X is not fifth. So I don't care about the rule over there. I don't have to split or anything. In the world where X is not first, then I could split one more time. And the way to split is to put X in the fifth spot in one of the worlds. And in the other world, X is still not first. And also now X is not fifth. Yeah. Then I have three worlds now after two splits. They are collectively exhaustive because X is either first or fifth or not first, not fifth. And I've applied two of the rules. So I've killed two rules with those two splits and I have collectively exhaustive, mutually exclusive worlds. I think probably no one in the world is as interested in this as I am <laughs> because this is something that I've like stro- you know, stumbled over. Like I've said it in class like a thousand times in 15 years. Yeah. But now I have this new, I don't know, it's a little more concise. No, I, lo-
1: I, love how, I love how concise it is. I will say, I do think there are going to be people who hear this phrasing, right? And they're just going to gloss over. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm inclined to say, okay, well, it also just means every world that you create, when you split, when you create worlds... Every world has to be
0: unique and cover every possibility. That does not mean that it has to be unique in every way. Just
1: in whatever variable or rule you're using to split those. It
0: it has to be unique in some way. That's what makes it mutually exclusive. Yep. So Mm -hmm. X is first. X is not first. Well, you know, in the world where X is first, Y has to go forth. But in the world where X is not first, Y could still go fourth. It's not Mm -hmm. like Y can't go fourth in that world. Y could be fourth in that world. So you could have Y fourth in two worlds, Mm -hmm. but you can't have the exact same solution because in one of the solutions, X is first. And in the other solution, X is not first. That's why those that's how they are been saying unique.
1: Mm -hmm. I just want
0: to make sure people don't think it's unique in every respect. It's unique in whatever respect you split on in the first place.
1: Yeah, which is also true for mutually exclusive, right? and collectively exhaustive. Um, I think it's Collectively just new...
0: exhaustive means that there aren't any solutions that won't go through one or the other of these worlds. Exactly. It covers right. at, every At every single split, mm-hmm. you have to be making room for all possible solutions in the game. So you're allowed to say X first, X not first, but you're not allowed to randomly just put X first and then put X fifth and ignore the possibility that X can go second, third, or fourth. Yeah. Because then they're not collectively exhaustive. Yep. So two things. It's like, and so when people ask, you know, well, how, how do I know if I'm making worlds correctly? How do I know how to make these splits? It's, it's a two-part test. Yep. Are they collectively exhaustive? So you're not leaving anything out, right? There's, there's room for all possible solutions in your two worlds mm-hmm. and they have to be mutually exclusive. In other words, you can't find the exact same solution in those two worlds.
1: Yeah. I want to say this. I think this is so important. I'm going to say one more thing about this, and this is the visualization that I have. I imagine someone walking down a path. Yep. And they come to a fork in the road that splits into three paths. So okay. if you're if your X can either go first, second, or fifth. Okay. If that's one of the rules, X can go first or X must go first, second, or fifth then what you've done is, at least when it comes to X, you've, you've been walking down this path and you've come to a split and there are three paths now branching off. Mm-hmm. Each path is unique or mutually exclusive. In other words, the paths don't overlap. There are three different paths. Either X can be first, X can be second, or X can be fifth. And as long as you create all three of those worlds, you've been collectively exhaustive right yep. you've or you've you've created you've covered every possibility if you only yep. create the two worlds where x is first and where x is second then you haven't been collectively exhaustive and your worlds are going to fail
0: yep and it's not mutually exclusive if you're thinking like I'm going to make a world where X is first, and then I'm going to make another world where X is first. Yeah. And then a world where X is second and a world where X is fifth. Well, wait, why do we have two worlds where X is first? I thought we were making mutually exclusive splits. So if I go down the road of X first, then yeah, there's, that's the X first world. Now yeah. I might split that world later. I sure. might end up yeah. with more than one X one world, but then they, those will be mutually exclusive on some other dimension. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. All right. Rapid fire maybe for these. Uh... Yeah, I think we need to do rapid <laughs> got, fire. Uh, four more and then word of the week.
1: Okay. This one is from Kyle. The subject is application essays. Hello. Do you guys believe that it negatively affects an application to leave all optional essays blank? I've been a premium subscriber for a couple of months and enjoy the demon. Thanks. Yes. Okay. Next. (laughs) I mean, do you want to say anything else about that? Well, it's
0: certainly not helping your case. If you don't respond to any of the optional essays, I think that you're sending the message that you're not that interested in their school. Mm hmm. And so, you know, I mean, their yield protection is a thing. It's maybe not as big of a thing as people make it out to be, but yield protection is a thing. And if the school has any doubt whether you're really interested in attending their school and you didn't respond to any of the optional essays, especially, you know, depending on what those optional essays are asking, then I think in, in some cases, it would be an automatic denial. Yale, I'm, you know, if you don't respond to the Yale 250, I think you're done. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think you're going to Yale if you don't respond to that essay. So okay. yes, there are cases clearly where it will not only affect your application but negatively, but it will be fatal to your application if you don't respond to optional essays. It just depends on how much it feels like they really want you to respond to them.
1: Yeah. But have a bias towards doing so. Look for opportunities to
0: write more. I mean, if you don't have anything useful to say, right? If you're me and you're just some white guy, maybe you don't want to write a diversity statement. But, (laughs) you know, even that said, I mean, I'm also not like really a lawyer, right? I, I wouldn't, I don't have the work ethic to be a lawyer because I can immediately make the counter argument, which is dude, neither of your parents went to college. I'm from a real small town. Neither of my parents went to college. I could absolutely write a diversity statement about growing up in the country and having parents who were married at 19 and had me at 21 and just worked their whole life. I mean, that's that makes me different in law school. Yeah. So why wouldn't I write that diversity essay? I don't know. I I I would think that if you If you're just by default leaving all of them blank for all of your schools, it just seems like you're not actually that interested in law school, which is okay. I mean, (laughs) what I would say to Kyle is, hey, are you sure you really want to do this? Because the nature of your question indicates that you might not understand the world that you're getting yourself into.
1: Great. Cool. This next one is from Madison. It's the subject is first generation students.
0: Hey, perfect timing. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm wondering if you have observed any law school admissions advantages for first-generation college students. I'm not a URM, but I do come from a low-income background and was the first in my family to go to college. In undergrad, my FLI, first-generation low-income status, was a huge advantage in my admission to an elite university. I'm wondering if the top law schools apply similar weight to these circumstances, especially schools that now give need-based aid. Oh, so Harvard, Stanford, Yale? Because I think that's pretty much it. Thank you for all your help, Madison. Even for the schools that give need-based
1: aid, though, they're still admitting you after you get the right LSAT and GPA. Yeah. So Yeah. I don't think this is going to get you in, but if you get in, no. hopefully you can get better money.
0: I do think that some schools are going to, though, use first-generation or first-generation low-income. You know, I won't be surprised if we uh, start hearing fly- Uh, more often because given the Supreme court decision Mm -hmm. from last year, if they can't explicitly use race to try to increase the diversity of their school, one thing that they probably can still do is, is, uh, give some kind of a boost for first generation students and low income. I know that they're allowed to do. So yes, I I think that um, even if it hasn't been a thing in the past, I would not be surprised at all to find that that is going to be an increasingly important boost in the future. Uh, Law schools are made up of people who do largely want their schools to be more diverse. And if the Supreme Court is telling them that they cannot explicitly use race, they're going to find other ways that they can try to not be quite so homogenous. Right. Next one is uh, from anonymous. Subject is LSAT writing.
1: Hi, Ben and Nathan. Can you please tell the listeners more about the LSAT writing section? I do not know much about it, and I have been preparing. I have not been preparing for it. How important is this section when it comes to law school admissions? And how do you recommend that someone prepares? Would it be possible to include an LSAT writing time section on the LSAT
0: demon? Thanks. Hmm. Do, I know that we have LSAT writing resources. There is a lesson about LSAT writing. I've never thought about it. Do we have a timed... Can they do it timed on LSAT Demon? They I can, can, but
1: that would be fairly easy to implement. We just take a time section from a test and we turn it into a, a one-page writing sample.
0: Not a bad idea. I mean, I I think just... but. <laughs>
1: Do I want to to encourage
0: retort to myself, which is (laughs) for my entire career of teaching LSAT, I have told people never practice the LSAT writing section. It's not scored. Many schools explicitly say that they ignore it. I, I would use it if I was in law school admissions. I think I would use it, especially if I was unsure, right? Like somebody who has bad grades, but good LSAT, I might be like, "Uh, can this person actually string a sentence together and I would take, I would read for five seconds. I would read the first two sentences of their LSAT writing and I would immediately make a snap judgment about whether they could write or not. write.
1: We could provide one essay example. The best way to learn is to just do so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one we, we or have, two. Mm-hmm. We have resources. It's all built into the demon. There's already lessons. You can, you can find those. Um, we also probably have just like free videos out there. I would imagine on how to do uh LSAT writing. It's super, super formulaic. It's not anything that you ever need to worry about. I would encourage you to just read the prompt, re- read the, the directions and then read one of the sample prompts. But basically all they ever have done for, I don't think they've ever changed it. Have they LSAT writing is here are two plans that the city might choose to revitalize their downtown district the one example that i remember is should we build the sports stadium or should we build the tire factory and then when you read the fact pattern there's good things about the sports stadium there's bad things about the sports stadium there's good things about the tire factory there's bad things about the tire factory in some places those things interact They tell you exactly what the city is interested in. It's like we're interested in uh, revitalizing the downtown area and job creation or something like that. So here are the things that you should be thinking about as you assess these plans. And then it's really important that you follow the instructions which ask you to advocate. You're not supposed to write a book report about the two plans. You're not supposed to summarize the strengths and weaknesses of the two plans. It says specifically that you're supposed to advocate for one choice over the other. Yep. So pick, and you could pick at random. It really doesn't matter. Pick whichever side you think is going to be the most fun, or think pick the side that you can most clearly see the points in your favor. And then you emphasize, it's like pretty... Common sense, right? If you're advocating, you're going to emphasize the strengths of your choice. You're going to emphasize the weaknesses of the thing you're not picking. Then you might also acknowledge and try to deflate the weaknesses of your choice.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You might also acknowledge and try to diminish the strengths of the other choice but the thing you really want to do is hammer on the good facts for you and how those tie into the goals and the bad facts for the other plan and how those don't tie into the goals. That's basically it.
1: Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, agree. Y-
0: you don't need much more than that. So, <laughs> I, you know, we could, I guess, add a timed LSAT writing to the demon because I guess, why not? And you could just have it there, Just but do it. it's kind of a waste of time. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's something that anybody really needs to practice.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a waste of time. It's 35 minutes. People are going to spend way yeah, more time true. on their personal statement. They just do it. And that that doing it is what's going to make them much more sensitive to the feedback or the model example that they read. They'll be like,
0: oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. 35 minutes, it's like, you know, oh, 15th of a work day for a lawyer. Yeah. 15th of a single work day. So, yeah, I mean, for me, that's a waste of time because I'm not a lawyer (laughs) for you. If you're going to be a lawyer, probably not a waste of time because nothing's a waste of time because you need to be just willing to spend all of the time. Okay, last uh, email is from Anonymous. It's about words of the week. It says, hi. I love that y'all have added word of the week on your weekly episodes. I have found myself paying closer attention to words I have no idea or unsure of what they mean and looking them up. Recently, while watching a reality TV show, one of the participants used the word cantankerous to describe the way his partner responded to an issue. I immediately grabbed my phone to Google the meaning of the word. To my surprise, it was used correctly. Go figure, smiley face. That's from Anonymous.
1: Okay, uh, when I hear the word cantankerous, I think cranky, but I haven't looked that word up. What's your definition of cantankerous? Yeah, I'm pretty
0: sure it means cranky. I'd be surprised if cranky was not one of, like, uh, confrontational. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That, I, I just wanted to say thank you to Anonymous for writing us in to tell us this. There, there are times where I feel like we don't do actual good in the world. Like, I I know that we do good for individuals who are striving to beat other individuals to get into law school. (laughs) Like, I know that if you're studying for the LSAT, you're better off with me than you are with anybody else. But what I don't know is whether I'm actually contributing anything to society. Because you getting a higher LSAT score and you getting admitted or you getting a scholarship, all that means is somebody else didn't get admitted or somebody else didn't get a scholarship. So, like, am I actually adding anything? to um the the good of the world but i don't know ben do you feel the same way that if somebody out there is actually looking up a word in real life i feel like i've actually done some education that is helping people
1: sure yeah and i do think um helping people i mean sometimes you just got to help individuals it's it can be too vague and amorphous to say okay how do i help the world i don't know But, um, yeah, this definitely helps. I mean, I love doing it too. So, oh, it's awesome. It's so fun.
0: It it deepens your understanding of words all the time. I looked up a word laying in bed this morning. I, I looked up the word chronically because I was wondering if chronically can ever be used in like a positive light
1: Mm, because of like chronic pain. Well, yeah, persistent. and specifically
0: the adverb chronically, but yeah. yeah, sure, chronic, the adjective, um, could also be I was you know, you would wonder if you're like, can that be used? Like, what's the thing that is unequivocally good? Um helping old ladies across the street? Okay, I'm a can I be a chronic helper of old ladies across the street? Chronic I, helper. I, a chronic <laughs> I mean, only if you were meaning good to criticize him, yeah. Right. Yeah. When I looked it up, it said, you know, I think it said typically or usually or especially of something negative. Mm-hmm. So you can be a chronic smoker, you know, but you can't be a, a you, you probably can't be a, uh, yeah, chronic helper (laughs) do-gooder Yeah, well but you could be a chronic do-gooder right you i could be describing someone if i was Um, really annoyed by the fact that like you can't walk down the street with them because they're going to stop every five seconds to to um clean (laughs) they're just like freelance volunteer cleaning windows of shops as you walk down the street i mean that would be you could maybe then properly describe them as a chronic do-gooder yeah because they're doing good, but in annoying ways. Got it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Eric posted uh, a wait, word. Wait, real here. quick, I just looked oh. up the contain- can- oh, cantankerous.
1: Can- cantankerous definition. Mm-hmm. It's difficult or irritating to deal with. Sounds like cranky. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool.
0: Eric uh, offers the word galvanize. He says, I knew what this word meant, but I only recently just learned it's etymology um i think ben are you familiar with galvanize
1: yeah i so galvanize i think is often when i've heard it before it's usually used in like a political context you might Mm -hmm. galvanize the your supporters to come out and vote for you it's to get them to take action but i think it comes from literally right in science when you galvanize something you make it harder. It's like applying like electricity or something. I makes... think there
0: is, I think it has something to do with metal. Yeah. And I think it has something to do with applying electricity to it in some way to do something to it that I don't really understand. I think that you can buy galvanized steels. Yeah. Yeah. Galvanized steel. It's
1: definitely harder, right? Which is the same idea is like you, you motivate your followers to do something.
0: Oh, right. That's how it's normally used now. Yeah. The etymology. Okay. Wow. Wikipedia. Luigi Galvani. Mm. He was an Italian physicist, uh, physician, physicist, biologist, and philosopher who studied animal electricity. What? In 1780, he discovered that the muscles of dead frog's legs twitched when struck by an electrical (laughs) spark. This was an early study of bioelectricity.
1: Okay. So it comes from this guy. So he was applying electricity to get the muscles to move.
0: I guess. Yeah. I mean, I want to look up specifically like galvanized steel. Yeah. Okay. Galvanized steel is a zinc alloy product. Zinc iron alloy alloy product where the base metal is coated by the hot dip process, heated to induce alloying between the molten zinc coating and the steel. The resulting finish is a dull, matte surface. Galvanized steel is conducive to welding, and the surface is excellent for paint adhesion. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I, I knew that, like matte finish, because and I think I I think it's from looking at nails in the hardware store. Is what I knew galvanized from.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. Eric asks us a question. We can wrap up on this. It says If you had two words derived from your names, so like Nathanize or Olsonize, what would you like them to mean? If you're going to Olsonize something, what would it mean?
1: I don't know. Hopefully simplify.
0: Yeah. 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 I was going to say, I mean, as a teacher, right? That's my primary identity teacher, podcaster, hmm. I would say, uh, yeah, to, to, to Nathanize something would be to break it down into common sense language. Plain, plain spoken, straightforward, no bullshit is to Nathanize.
1: To make it intuitive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Thanks, Eric, for that random question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, be LSAT famous please ask questions or share news with us at LSAT Demon if you have questions about the LSAT Demon itself email help at lsatdemon.com you can also check out our other podcast LSAT Demon Daily please subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts it helps us immensely that was episode 438 of the Thinking LSAT podcast thanks all y'all for listening nice knowing ya don't pay for